You're listening to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. After Mark and Grace Driscoll's new book, Win Your War, looks at how God creates and Satan counterfeits. There's a spiritual attack for your relationship with God, others, yourself, and the church. This is a super biblical and practical book. Order Win Your War today. Alrighty, thanks for joining us. We're in the middle of the Win Your War series. You can pick up a free copy of the book if you're here at the church on the way out. And uh, I, I, I was thinking about it. There's one thing I'm assuming we all did, or two things we all did this morning. Uh, we decided that we would put some breakfast in us. Amen? How many of you did that? And put clothes on us. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate that tremendously. Every day we wake up and we decide what goes in and what goes on. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. You don't just have a body, you also have a soul. That each day, not just physically, you need to decide what goes in and what goes on. Spiritually, in your soul, you need to decide what goes in and what goes on. That leads to our topic today, finding freedom from defilement and inner vows. And my point simply is this, sometimes we get confused or it becomes complex for us to know what we should wear for our identity or how we should make our vows internally when we're suffering because of sin. Sin causes harm. Sometimes the sin is self-harm. We do something that brings pain into our own life. Sometimes we are victims. Other people do things, they sin against us, that brings hurt and harm into our life. The result is that the demonic attack, the spiritual battle, the war for you is oftentimes most raging when you're most hurting. Think of it in military terms. If you knew that the person you were up against or the force that you were aligned against was depleted, they were discouraged, maybe they were injured or harmed or wounded, that's when you would really increase your march forward. Well, so it is in the demonic realm. When you sin or are sinned against, you're hurt. Self-harm or harm from others, as a result, you're wounded. As a result, you're weaker. And that tends to be where the attack comes regarding what you should wear on you and what you should allow in you. And so when we're talking about um, defilement, that's something that Satan wants to put on you. When we're talking about inner vows, that's something that Satan wants to put in you. That being said, um, give you a summary case study. Um, this young woman wrote a letter to Grace and I a while back and we included it in the book. Hear her story and her bravery. Dear uh, Mark and Grace, I really hope you answer my question. So if you're watching, you made a sermon and a book, we love you and we wanna help. I've had this question in my mind since I was very young. So as a little girl, she says, I was sexually abused. Sexually abused, which is demonic. It's evil, it's satanic. That doesn't come down from the Father in heaven. That comes up from hell. I have no one to talk to about it. And I am devastated to hear that. We need to have pastors, counselors to talk and walk with us through the war that is life. And so I would encourage this young woman to find somebody trustworthy and godly to speak with. And I've prayed and seen your videos since I was 14. She says, in your videos, you say that we can get cleansed by Jesus. That's what goes on you. But something I feel very guilty for is not only that I have never been a virgin, but that I have also had sex after my abuse. So I feel any chance of being clean with my body was sabotaged because of it. She's talking about evil that was done to her and then also things that she has done, both of which combined to make her feel defiled, unclean, broken, dirty, undeserving. And let me just say this, this is the most underreported of crimes. One in four women and one in three men will report that they have been abused in this way, but because it's the most underreported crime, it is likely significantly higher than that. And so her bravery in sharing her story ministers to many. She says, I don't feel good enough for a man or for God. And as much as I want to believe that Jesus doesn't judge me harshly for it, 
I just can't. What can I do? I know there are other women who are put in this, who are pure, and I am just not or ever was. What she has done and what has been done to her, she's now wearing it and assumes that that is incapable, unable of being changed. And I would say many of you feel this same way. How do I cleanse myself through Jesus? How do I take all this feeling of not being good enough for anyone because I am so impure? You hear the word for defilement? The Bible uses about a dozen words to refer to defilement. Impure, unclean, dirty, defiled. Dinah isn't her real name. It's the name that we use to protect her identity. Uh, but there is a gal in Genesis 34, she was abused and it says that she was defiled. So she's got a kindred spiritual sister. How do I take this feeling of not being good enough for him because I am so impure? I have cried so much about this over the years and I don't know how to deal with it. I hope you answer my question. She goes and say, God bless you and your family. Um, says that she loves and prays for our daughters and my wife. And she then says, uh, how should I live my life from now on if I want to be seen as pure through God's eyes? My whole sermon is to answer that question. When we're talking about those who have sinned and been sinned against, things are put on them and things are put in them that destroy them. And we have this sense of shame, this sense of defilement, this sense of impurity. Over the years, Grace, my wife and I have had the honor of ministering to a great number of abuse victims. And every single occasion after they were abused, they have told us that they all have done the exact same thing. What do you think that is? Take a shower. Because the body has been defiled. The problem is so has the soul and water doesn't go that deep. So there are many who feel that they are loved by God, but dirty, defiled, broken, damaged, impure, unclean, and unchangeable on the inside. We're gonna fix that for you today because God loves you and he has better intended for you. When it comes to this issue of defilement, feeling dirty, feeling unclean, you need to know that that is not what God made you for. God did not make you for shame. Genesis two is before Satan enters the picture, before sin enters the world, God made everyone and everything. And the man and his wife were both, what? If you're from Texas, naked. So the man and the woman, they're naked and they were not what? Ashamed, there is no shame. God doesn't create you to be filled with shame. Right, Satan comes to bring shame and put it on you, but that's not what God creates for you. And when it says that they're naked without shame, what it means is they have no secrets. They have no double life. They're, they're not hiding anything. God, you know who I am and my spouse knows who I am and I have nothing to hide and I'm not ashamed. We're not ashamed because we haven't said or done anything sinful yet. They're still pure. What happens then in Genesis 3, the serpent, the dragon, Satan, our enemy and God's adversary shows up. He tempts our first parents to sin. They align with him in his cosmic rebellion against God. And then as a result of sin, they sewed fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. You know what this is? This is hiding. You can't know who I am. You can't see who I am and I can't know who you are and I can't see who you are. Let me say most of our life is loincloth making. Let me say that social media is mainly where we hang all of our loincloths. We're pretending to be someone we're not, living a life that we're not, experiencing something that we don't, but we pretend that we are so that people don't know who we really are. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Here's the good news. God comes looking for us. He doesn't just abandon us. He comes looking for us. And he comes 
And this is their opportunity for cleansing and forgiving and healing. All they need to do is run to him. That's all we need to do is run to him. What do they do? What do we do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. People who have sinned or been sinned against, people who carry shame, a sense of dirty defilement, invariably they hide and they disappear. They flee from God, they flee from church, they flee from relationships. There are people that you know and love, you're like, I don't know why they won't talk to me. I don't know why they won't let me pray for them. I, I don't know why they don't come to church because they have shame. And that shame is causing them to run from God rather than run to God. So then God did something to cover the shame of their defilement. Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You know what God says? I will give you dignity. I will give you privacy. God treats us kindly and he covers it. Here's what I'm telling you. Whatever you have done or whatever has been done to you, don't try and cover it, invite God to cover it. Now this being said, when we're talking about defilement, we're talking about places, objects, people, and then days. In the book, Grace and I mentioned three categories. And today, as I was praying for you over breakfast, God reminded me of a fourth. Number one, places become defiled. Give you a case study. So in the days of Jesus, God's people were the nation of Israel and there was a Northern and a Southern kingdom. In the middle was an area called Samaria. That area was pagan false gods, separate religion, lots of rebellion, sexual sin. And because God's people considered it defiled, unclean, dirty, rather than walking from north to south, they walked around Samaria, just walked around it, okay? Some of you have places that you won't go, neighborhoods, cities, homes, whatever the case may be. I'm never gonna go back to my parents' house. What happened to me there? I, I, can't, I can't relive that. That city I moved away from, I have so much pain there, I will never visit it again. Places become defiled. Jesus Christ comes and he ventures from north to south. Does he go around or does he go through? He goes through. Here's the good news. Jesus goes through Samaria and he stops to cleanse a defiled woman at a well, to cleanse her in her soul. Because Jesus goes to the places that we don't wanna go and he cleans the things that we can't clean. Number two, objects become defiled. Hebrews 13, four says to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled that you can defile the marriage bed. One is by making it the dating bed or the cohabitating bed or the fornicating bed or the adultery bed. That's how the bed becomes defiled. God wants it to be pure, consecrated, holy unto him for the covenant of marriage. Some of you, things you see as unclean and defiled. You, you, you struggle to be in places or the presence of certain objects because it triggers for you a sense of defilement and guilt and shame. Number three, people are considered unclean. There was a whole category in the days of Jesus of people who were ritually and ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they couldn't enter into the worship of God and the presence of God in the temple. And there was a whole category that when they would enter a room, they would cry out, unclean, unclean. There are certain people that you will consider rightly or wrongly unclean and defiled. I'm not even gonna talk to them. I can't be in their presence. They disgust me. I'm ashamed of them. Being around them is very difficult. And then fourth, what God reminded me of today, that dates become defiled. These are negative anniversaries. See, God creates Satan counterfeits. God creates holidays. Those are holy days to bring us joy. Satan counterfeits with unholy days, unholidays to bring us sorrow. Some people actually keep these in their mind or on their calendar. 
oh, that's the day that my spouse left. That's the day that I heard about the adultery. That's the day that my business partner ripped me off. And it becomes a negative anniversary. And it's a day that is darkened and defiled because something horrific happened on that day. When it comes to this issue of defilement, it is not a Christian problem, it is a human problem. It becomes a human problem. And what I want you to consider is not just dressing your body every day, but also dressing your soul. And here's what we see in Zechariah 3. Your body and soul get dressed every day. So some of you, you didn't put a lot of thought into your wardrobe today. We, we love you. I'm just stating the flip-flop, gym shorts, t-shirt, obvious. Some of you, he's picking on me. No, no, just an observation. And, uh, and some of you, some of you put a lot of thought into what you're wearing, right? We could tell. Right guys, your socks match your shirt, right? You have buttons. I mean, effort was put into this. This was significant, thank you. What happens is every day we decide, what am I gonna wear on my body? Here's what I'm telling you. It's at least as important to decide what you'll wear in your soul. Because what we wear on our body projects who we are. What we wear in our soul projects who we are in Christ. The scene in Zechariah 3 is one of my favorite in the whole Bible. It's a scene in the unseen realm. The Bible says that there are two realms, but one reality for God. There is a spiritual world and there is a physical world. And these two worlds are both ruled by God and interconnected. And occasionally the curtain is pulled back and the unseen realm is revealed. And that is precisely what happens here in Zechariah 3. Then he showed me, so it's a vision. Right? He gets a vision, Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest represents all of God's people, stands in your place. So when you see him, put yourself in that place because he's there in your place. Standing before the angel of the Lord, that's what I'll call pre-incarnate, before he walked on the earth, that's Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. There are two categories in the uh, Old Testament. There, there are a group that is referred to as an angel of the Lord. Angel means messenger. An angel of the Lord, those are divine spirit beings created by God, we know them as angels. There is one that is distinct, however, called the angel or the messenger of the Lord. He is called God, he is obeyed as God, and he is worshiped as God. His name is Jesus and that's him because he is the word of God. He is God's message to us. So here there's you typified by Joshua. There is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. He has a message for you. And who? Satan. Not only is God in your life, so is the demonic. Not only does God speak to you, so does Satan. And Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the children of God, that he accuses them day and night. This is the counterfeit of God's forgiveness is Satan's accusation. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. When we are up against demonic forces, temptation, lies, accusations, we don't need to arrogantly say, I rebuke you. We need to humbly say, the Lord rebuke you. It says the same thing in Jude. There's only one chapter, but in verse nine, the archangel Michael didn't give a rebuke. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So when you're tempted, I rebuke the spirit of temptation, but I rebuke it because the Lord rebuke you. It's not my authority, but it's his. Jesus said all authority was given to him. When an accusation comes, I, I, in the name of Jesus, rebuke the spirit of accusation, the Lord rebuke you. It's exercising your God-given divine authority. Humbly, the Lord rebuke you, not arrogantly, I rebuke you. Because the fight is ultimately between the Lord and the demon. And if you get yourself out of the way, then you can see God win a victory for you. 
the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, that's God's people, rebuke you. Is not this a brand? Some of your translations will say branch plucked from the fire. That hell is hot, that the imagery is burning and that we are all stacked up like cordwood and kindling and the embers are rising and Jesus comes and takes you out, takes you out of the burn pile. Any of you ever taken a stick out of a fire? It's not consumed and destroyed, but it's smoldering a little bit. That's what Jesus did for you if you're a Christian. He literally reached into the fire and he grabbed you. You're like, man, I am a little warm and smoking, but at least I'm out, okay? He loves you. That's what he did for you. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in what? Filthy garments, that's defilement, that's uncleanness. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Next slide, please. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, your rebellion, your folly, your, your defilement away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments, clean. You get to change what you wear because Jesus changes who you are. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. You see the dirty clean? See that God makes clean, Satan counterfeits with dirty, Jesus makes clean again. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here is the picture in the unseen realm. So picture yourself here. Joshua's standing in your place. So one side is Satan who is accusing. What he is doing is he is bringing up everything you have ever done and he's naming it publicly so that you'll suffer shamefully. It's embarrassing. Uh, remember when you said this? Oh, I don't wanna talk about that. Remember when you did that? That was disgusting. I can't believe you did that. You did it a lot. Oh, I forgot all about that. I try, I try not to even think about, oh gosh. Everybody's seeing this and hearing this. And, and then he, he moves on to a second list. In addition to the things you've done, here's the things that have been done against you. Oh gosh, no, please don't talk about my abuse and please don't talk about my divorce. And, Please, Lord, I can't hear this. And you're, you're wearing it. You look down, like, I'm wearing it. Head to toe, I'm dirty. This is disgusting and embarrassing. And it's all true. So I can't deny it. And then you hear another voice. Jesus is here too. And Jesus said, that one's with me. So take off what they were wearing and I'll wear it and take what I was wearing and they can wear it. This is, I need you, I need you to, I need you to believe this. You're not just forgiven, you're clean and righteous and pure in Christ. Somebody say, I don't live that way. Well, start believing it and you'll start living it. Right. Start believing it, you'll start living it. Jesus takes off what you were wearing and gives you what he is wearing. That's amazing. See, people who don't understand this, you've only really got three options. Hide who you are, celebrate who you are, or change who you are. deny what you're wearing, celebrate what you're wearing, or have Jesus change what you're wearing. Not only did Jesus take your place on the cross, he put you in his place through the cross. I'll give you some theological terms. One is double imputation. That on the cross, 
all the filth that you and I wear goes to Jesus and all of the holiness, obedience and righteousness of Jesus comes to us and he literally changes wardrobes with us. That's double imputation. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he called this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite scriptures says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this as well, there's another big theological word and that is expiation. And that is that you are not just forgiven, you are clean. I think a lot of Christians understand that they're forgiven, but they don't understand that they're clean. And sometimes they'll refer to themselves in deplorable ways, which is grievous. I was talking to a pastor from another country, church planner, good guy, doing a great job. And I was encouraging him on the phone. I was like, you're doing a good job, man. You know, I, I see great destiny in your future. I think God is raising you up in an area that has tremendous need. And he said, well, I'm just doing my best as a worm in the scum of the earth. I said, no, God calls you son, not worm. I've got sons, none of them are named worm. And who told you you were the scum of the earth? That may have been who you were before Christ, but something changed when you met Christ. You are now robed in the righteousness of Christ, not wearing the unrighteousness of your deeds and misdeeds. I said, please don't tell your people that and please don't tell yourself that. Jesus makes you clean. He takes not only your sin, but also your shame. When we sin or are sinned against, we feel defiled. The result is that we experience shame. Hebrews 12.2 says to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus died for your sin and your shame. Jesus took your sin and your shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Before Jesus went to the cross, there was no joy. In the garden of Gethsemane, before he substituted himself for sinners, he is up anxious all night, sweating like drops of blood, praying, and then he surrenders himself to the will of the Father. And it doesn't say that there was joy for him in the cross because that's where he took your place and he experienced the wrath of God the Father for you so that you could experience the love of God the Father through him. And what happened in that moment is that Jesus kept going through his suffering because there was joy on the other side. That joy was glory to God and forgiveness and cleansing for you. Jesus knew on the other side, you would go from hated to loved you would go from kindling to blessing, that you would go from death to life, that you would go from hell to heaven, that you would go from Satan to the Lord. And Jesus knew that you would go from dirty to clean. So he went through it and there was joy not in it, but there was joy for him through it. Now, here's what I am telling you. Many Christians are wearing the old clothes that Satan wants them to wear, but that Jesus has already worn. So there's a guy in the Bible, I'll use a few illustrations from God's word. There's a guy in the Bible named Lazarus. He's one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends. The Bible says that he died and he was buried in grave clothes. And the King James said, he stinketh, okay? He stinketh, so he's very dead. And his grave clothes, they would be ceremonially defiled. Jesus showed up at his graveside, cried out, Lazarus, come forth. An old British preacher says, it's a good thing he said his name, otherwise he would have emptied the whole graveyard, right? Lazarus, come forth. So one guy gets out of his grave, it's Lazarus. For those of you that know the story, is he new inside? Yes. But what's he wearing? The old grave clothes. God has made him clean and new, but if you look at him, you can't see it because he's wearing his past. 
So what the Bible says is that some friends helped him take off his grave clothes. This is part of Christian community and relationship and life group and why we're together. Sometimes you're wearing something and you've worn it so long, you don't even notice it's dirty. And a friend comes and says, uh, why are you wearing that? I don't know, I've always worn that. You don't, no, no, Jesus wore that. You don't wear that anymore. You need to leave those grave clothes behind. When Jesus walked away from the tomb, friend, victory was for you, but what did he leave behind? His grave clothes. He's not wearing them anymore. You wore them, he wore them, he took them off, he took them off of you, nobody wears them anymore. If you are in Christ, you don't wear that anymore. That's why in Ephesians and Colossians, the apostle Paul uses this language a lot. Put off, put on. Take off your old clothes, put on your new clothes. Every day you not only clothe your body, you have to clothe your soul and say, in Christ, I am righteous. In Christ, I am clean. In Christ, I am forgiven. In Christ, I am new. In Christ, I am empowered. Now I will live out of who I am because of him. And let me say this, some of you, you've taken off a lot of the clothes, but you're still wearing dirty socks. There's some areas of your life, you're like, yeah, I just, I, I just, I have a hard time believing that Jesus is taking care of that. He's taking care of it all. And part of the spiritual warfare and the battle is in the mind to believe in what Jesus has done to make you forgiven and clean, and clean. So Jesus makes you clean. First John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, that's being open and honest and transparent, not with everybody, but those who are safe and godly and helpful. So you don't need to tell the universe what you've done. You need to tell godly people what you've done so that they can help you see yourself through what Christ has done for you. Because let me say this, there's really only three ways to establish an identity. It's what you've done, what they've done, or what he's done. Those are your only three options. And if you are seeing yourself by what you have done or what they have done, walking in the light is godly people reminding you of what Jesus has done. As he is in the light, we have fellowship, that spiritual friendship and relationship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses from how much unrighteousness? All of it, all of it. Some of you say, well, but what I did was really bad. Well, what Jesus did was really good. All, now let me say this too. Some of you believe this promise for others, but not for yourself. You'll quote this verse to someone, but you won't speak it over your own life. Cleanse from all of your unrighteousness. How about you? Well. You know, I have a hard time believing that. And some people will say, and I'm gonna push you, I have a hard time forgiving myself. Well, if Jesus' death and resurrection didn't fix your problem, then he failed. And it may seem humble, but actually that's offensive. And if Jesus says, you're forgiven, and you say, actually, Jesus, I'm the Supreme Court and I make the ultimate verdicts and I've decided I'm not forgiven. That may seem spiritual, but it's ultimately a demonic message. Jesus says you're forgiven. Jesus says you're clean. Jesus says you're pure. Jesus says you're new. So guess what, friend, you are. Some of you say, I don't feel it. You'll believe it, then you'll see it, then you'll feel it. And here's this great picture of what we get to wear forever. Revelation 19. I just keep seeing in this series, we go from Genesis to Revelation, from the first war on earth to the last war on earth. At the end here, it says, let us rejoice and exult. So we're gonna throw a party and celebrate Jesus here shortly and give him the glory for the uh, marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, which is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Some of your translations will say white, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
The Bible says that at the end of history, there's a big wedding, Jesus comes back and there is a wedding ceremony between Jesus and his church. Question, is the church pure? No, Jesus is pure. When Jesus comes back, does the church get to wear white? Yes, because Jesus has made her pure. So let me ask you this, why do Christian women wear white on their wedding day? Because Jesus has made them pure and clean. What if these women have done things or had things done to them that make them feel defiled? Did they still get to wear white? Yes, yes. So I want physical truths to remind us of spiritual truths. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to remind you when you scrub your dishes that Jesus makes you clean. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to remind you that when you do your laundry, you remind yourself that Jesus makes you clean. When you brush your teeth in the morning, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to remind you that Jesus makes you clean. And when you're sitting in a car wash, wondering how long it will take, take all of that time to remind yourself, Jesus makes you clean. As you're cleaning your home, as you're cleaning your car, as you're cleaning your body, remind yourself that Christ makes you clean. Remind yourself that Christ makes you clean. And some of you would say, I know he made me clean and then I got all dirty again. Like the dishes, like the house, like the laundry, like the car, he keeps making clean. Now, this first step in the spiritual war is Satan wants you to wear sin. Jesus wants you to wear righteousness. You gotta decide what goes on you. And then now we're gonna talk about what goes in you. And this is inner vows. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 34, don't make any vows. It's pretty clear. We make inner vows all the time. And here's where we are open to Satan's schemes and demonic deception and spiritual war. When we are hurting, when we're suffering, when someone has betrayed us, when someone has abandoned us, when someone has abused us, we are hurting and it hurts so greatly that we don't want to experience that hurt again. So what we do, we believe a lie. So it goes hurt, lie, vow. Hurt happens, Satan lies to us, and we make a vow to ourselves, wrongly assuming that the vow will protect us from ever experiencing that harm again. And it's a lie. God creates a covenant with himself and Satan's counterfeit is a vow with yourself. This is the counterfeit of covenant is inner vow. You are most likely to make inner vows at the places in your life that you have experienced the deepest hurt. I'll give you some examples. Grace and I talked about it, I'll share a few. For those of you that have been betrayed, your inner vow might be something like this. I've been hurt too much and I will never trust anyone again, including God. The lie is you can't trust anybody. The inner vow is I need to take care of myself because God and others will not do that. Now what happens as soon as you point out the lie and the vow, the person who has believed the lie and made the vow, they will immediately tell you what I will call the terrible tragic tale. That's a lie and your response is not very good. Let me tell you what happened to me. And they tell you the terrible tragic tale because in their mind, it justifies their response. But ultimately their response is hindering their well-being. But they want to present themselves as a victim, which perhaps they even are. 
so that you won't talk to them about the pain, the lie, or the vow, which is actually not very loving toward them because it remains stuck and hidden and broken. Number two, some of you are lonely. Since God and people have abandoned me, I'm on my own and I need to tend to myself. That's an, the lie is God has abandoned me and the vow is I need to be loyal to me. Some of you have been abused and you've told someone else, pastor, family member, counselor, and then there was a lot of drama and conflict. So your inner vow might be, I should have kept my abuse a secret now that others know I've made them upset. The lie is you shouldn't get help. And the vow is I'm not going to talk about it with anyone. Not gonna meet with a counselor, not gonna meet with a pastor, not gonna meet with godly wise counsel to try and heal from this hurt. Instead, I will just suffer in silence because when I talked about it, others got upset. Let's say for example, it was abuse in a family system and the family has an inner vow that is, we don't talk about family business and failures. We don't talk about any, we hold it in the family. Someone abuses you, you say something, they respond negatively, so then you make a vow that is actually adopting their vow, which is how you get generational curses. The same demonic vow binds multiple generations. Some of you are victims. You are, some of the things in our life are self-inflicted. Sometimes we are victims. For those of you who are victims, and you're not seeing justice come quickly to your abuser or offender, uh, the lie could be they're getting away with it and the vow is I'll make sure they don't. I'm gonna get vengeance and make them pay. Some of you have been in controlling relationships, domineering overbearing parents, domineering overbearing boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. The lie you're told is you need to be the controlling one. And the vow is in my future relationships, I'll be the one that dominates, not the one that's dominated. That's why sometimes the most hurting people are the most hurtful people. And some people have been traumatized. They've been through horrific suffering and grief. And the lie is time heals all wounds, which it doesn't, that's a lie. And then the vow is, I'll just move on with my life and I'm sure that I'll heal up eventually. And you don't, you don't. 10 insights on inner vows. Proverbs 20, 25, it is a snare, it's a trap, it's a demonic plot to say rashly, you're suffering, you're hurting, it's difficult and to react only after making vows. Jesus says, Matthew 5, I'm summarizing. I say, do not make any vows. And at the end, in context, he's talking about those who do make vows. This is from who? The evil one. The inner vow is where you invite the demonic into your life. Oftentimes the inner vow is the never again oath to me. Never again will someone betray me. Never again will I trust someone. Never again will I give my heart to someone. Never again am I gonna talk to you. Never again will I be in the same room as you. Never again will somebody raise their voice at me while well, I'm raising my voice. It's the never again oath to the self which is the counterfeit of thy will be done. Give you 10 insights on inner vows. Number one, we make inner vows rashly amidst pain. That's exactly what Proverbs is indicating. When we're hurting deeply, we tend not to be thinking deeply. And so we respond rashly. Okay. Now, what I would say is, 
oftentimes people will say, well, my reaction was not good, but let me tell you what happened. Okay, I'm sorry that that happened, but them hurting you and then you hurting you is not good for you and I love you. So I need you to respond to him patiently, not respond to them rashly. Number two, some of us make inner vows at such a young age that they become unconscious habits. Some of you made an inner vow when you were a kid. You did something, you told your parents and they disciplined you. You're like, I'm never, I'm not confessing anything. Never again will I come clean. That's an inner vow. Some of you realized I'm a little sneaky and maybe you know, kind of a naughty kid, but I'm the cute, funny one. And I notice when I'm cute and funny, I get away with it. You make an inner vow for the rest of my life. I'll be the cute, funny one who gets away with it. You can make all kinds of inner vows at a young age that you're unaware of as you become an adult. And oftentimes we're not even aware of these until we get married and we're like, why are you like that? Why do you think like that? You're crazy, I'm crazy, we're crazy. We're equally yoked. Some inner vows become entrenched as generational behaviors. An inner vow can also become a generational curse if each generation is living under the vow. So I'll pick on men and women. So which one should we do first? Women, okay. A couple of guys like women for sure. Okay, so we'll start with, so ladies first. Okay, ladies first. Some women grow up in a family where the women create a vow that goes over all the generations. Um, I've met some women who will say things like, well, in my family, us women are very opinionated. We just tell you what we're thinking. Why? I, I pulled 100% of the men in your life and they'd like a revote. <laughs> Why is it that whatever is in here has to come out here instantaneously and involve everybody? Sometimes the generational curse and the inner vow over women is, well, in my family, the women are just very emotional. We're very emotional. Right? You laugh, okay. I'll pray for your wife and your drive home. I see how this is gonna go, brother. <laughs> and it's like, why do, why do the women all just get to be emotional? Because what that means is they're being governed by their emotion, not submitting to God's will. Like, well, I just, that's how I feel. Well, don't be true to that, be true to him. And he'll change how you feel. Okay. How about the men? Let me pick on the men, because we believe in equality, which means offend everybody. So let me talk to the men. Sometimes an inner vow becomes a generational curse. I have met a lot of men who say, let me just see if you guys have heard this. Uh, in my family, we don't say I, Love you. Yeah, we don't say that. That's an inner vow. And that's actually against the word of God. God is a father who sends his son and they tell us they love us, which means he wants fathers and sons to say, I love you. How about this one for men? Um, in my family, we don't say, I'm sorry. The men don't say, I'm sorry. That's, that's an inner vow that's against the will of God. If you wanna set a demonic culture in your home, just be the head of the household who doesn't practice repentance and apology. Always be right, never be wrong and see what happens. How about this one? In my family, the men don't hug. Why? I don't know, my great grandpa made a vow and then my dad kept it, now I kept it, so I don't hug my sons. Well, go hug your son and break the inner vow. And then you and your son get in the car and go hug your dad and break it generationally, right? So how about this one? Last one, men. Real men don't, fill in the blank, cry. Okay, so Jesus wasn't a real man. So Jesus couldn't have been in your family because he wasn't good enough or tough enough to be a man with your last name. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. 
Jesus wept. Sometimes it's really good for the people who are with the men to see that the men have a heart for God and others like Jesus did. I'm so glad that Jesus remained loyal to the father and not to some family vow. So he could weep and he could come to embrace us and he could tell us that he loves us. And as a result, we can tell him we're sorry. Number five, inner vows take God's place. This hurt, I can't trust you, Lord. So the vow needs to replace you and rule over this. The vow now will decide my responses to this pain. Number six, oh, excuse me, number five, we become loyal to the inner vow instead of the Lord. Give you an example. God says, forgive them. No, I will never forgive them. I told myself a long time ago, if anybody says or does that, I'm done with them, I don't forgive them. When the vow is tested, your loyalty is not to the Lord, it's to the vow. God would say, I forgave you, you forgive them. No. Why? Because they hurt me. The Lord would say, and you've hurt me, but I've forgiven you. And you need to forgive those who have hurt you. I will not, there's the vow, and the vow is over the Lord. The loyalty is to the vow over the Lord. Number six, we often make inner vows without deep conscious awareness. We don't even have often an awareness of our inner vow until somebody violates it. And you know that you're dancing on a vow, an inner vow, when somebody gets really overly emotional. You're like, wow, we could talk about anything, you're fine. We talk about that and it explodes. It's because you're, you're venturing near the vow. This will cause people to have a fight or flight response. Okay, that's it, we're gonna fight or I'm, I'm scared and running. When these things happen, you're, you're oftentimes encroaching on where the enemy has a stronghold through an inner vow. Number seven, violating an inner vow, as I said, often triggers an overly emotional reaction. What do you get emotional about? What do you get angry about? What are you scared of? What are you hurt by? What are the subjects that, hey, we're not talking about that. Number eight, we have a hard time not seeing our vows as equal to God's laws. Let me explain the demonic foothold of spiritual religious legalism. Legalists are often people who were hurt, so they make a rule that really is a vow, and then they're hurt again, so they make another ruler vow, and then they're hurt again, so they make another ruler vow. Next thing you know, they're a legalist. They've got lots of rules and vows that aren't God's law. Some of you grew up in religiously, spiritually unhealthy homes and the parents took God's word and they added to it lots of their laws and they discipline you for things that Jesus didn't even die for because it doesn't rise to the level of sin. And this is where you can grow up in a home and sometimes they'll quote the Bible, but they quote it like Satan quoted it to Adam and Eve and like Satan quoted it to Jesus to cause confusion rather than clarity. Legalistic people are oftentimes the most wounded people and the most fearful people. Number nine, we punish people who break our inner vow. I told you, don't do that, don't say that. If you ever cross that line, you will experience my wrath. Let me just tell you, that's not parenting, that's abuse. We need to understand that it is God's job to pour out wrath and not ours. And he pours out wrath perfectly, we do not. And he pours out wrath on those who 
disobey his laws, not those who disobey our vows. I thought we had air conditioning in this building, but it's warm up here and I feel lonely. <laughs> Number 10, an inner vow opens the door to the enemy. It's a demonic foothold that becomes a stronghold that becomes a death hold. Because again, pain, you suffer, you're hurting. I just wanna acknowledge that, let me accept that, let's not diminish that. But then Satan comes in and he puts a lie over it. In John eight, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. The father is the one who births all the lies on the earth, same father, he birthed them all. He says, your father is the devil. He tells people in John eight, meaning you are believing all the lies. Once you believe the lies, then you make a vow. Then you make a vow. But the vow is part of the lie. The vow is the obedience to the lie. The vow is the application of the lie. And so it's demonic. It's demonic. I'm straining to put into language what I'm feeling. I've been praying for you all week. I'm exhausted. I mean, just getting here was kind of emotional war, if I'm honest. Here's what I see. I see people that have been through pain, suffering, hell. And I see Satan convincing them of a lie. I see themselves committing themselves to an inner vow. I see themselves getting further from God. I see them getting further from others. I see the relationships with the people who love them the most being pained and strained. And I see people that God made for life walking down a path of death. And if you ask them, why are you walking that path? They will say, because of pain. And the pain is real. And so is Jesus. So is Jesus. Now, let me just make this abundantly clear. Where does all of this start? And this is spiritual warfare. Satan wants to put it on you and put it in you to destroy you. All of this started when Satan made the first inner vow. Did you know this? Isaiah 14, God looks at Satan and says, you said in your heart, is that inner? That's inner. God sees the heart, God sees the inner. You said in your heart, and here's, here's his vow. This is Satan's inner vow. I, you're gonna notice a lot of I, it's not about God, it's about me. I will ascend, I'm going up. I'm not gonna be humble, I'm gonna be proud. Above the stars of God, that's the language for angels. I'm going to rule, I'm going to be in charge. I'm gonna live independent. I'm gonna have my own throne. I'll make my own morality. I'll set my own identity. I will chart my own destiny. Satan's an American. <laughs> Some of you are like, I thought that was the point. Wrong kingdom. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. That means when people get together to worship and angels get together to worship, they're gonna be singing songs about me. Sing my praises. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. Before there were human beings, there were angelic and divine beings. One of them named Satan made an inner vow declared war on God, recruited a third of the heavenly host to join him. They live under his inner vow. They came to earth. They brought the war from the presence of God to the people of the earth. They went to our first parents and invited them to take the same inner vow. 
Live independent of God, establish your own morality, live for your own glory, make yourself the center of your existence. And our first parents, they submitted themselves to Satan's inner vow. And I'll tell you what, Satan is still recruiting people to take his vow. He is still recruiting people to take his vow. And he remains loyal to his vow instead of his creator. That's why we have spiritual war today. Ultimately, spiritual war is the result of one being's inner vow. Just think of all the death, devastation, and damage you and I can do to generations of our family and legacy if we put over them a demonic inner vow. I'll close with a story and why I think this is so important for you practically. The first few sermons, we established a theological framework. Now we're gonna get into the practical. Satan didn't even show up until Adam and Eve were married with a ministry call on their life, which means if you get married and wanna serve the Lord, you are now in the front line of the war. Grace and I, came into our marriage with defilement and an inner vow. We met at age 17, something had happened to Grace before I met her that we didn't really connect the dots regarding until many years into our marriage and it was abuse. And she didn't see it that way until we're doing ministry with abuse victims and then she realizes that's what happened to me there was some deception in there that caused her to not see it as clearly as I did or as God does. So my sweet wife brings defilement. She's wearing some things that were done to her that she should not be wearing. I bring into the marriage inner vows that I didn't even know I had because I didn't have this language or categories. But I had a, you will never bow in my heart. So we say, what was it? It doesn't matter. It was demonic. It was wrong. At some point in our relationship, grace violated my inner vow. What do you think grace got? My wrath. My wrath. So here we are, defilement and inner vow, married. I'm a pastor teaching the Bible. You can be a Bible teacher with an inner vow. Grace bravely took off what was put on her and she put on what Jesus provided for her to wear. That changed her whole life and identity. For me, I had to reach a point of decision that is I will remain loyal to the Lord or the vow. If I remain loyal to the vow, I will destroy our marriage. Grace and God were kind enough to forgive me of my inner vow. And I renounced my inner vow so that I could walk in the will of God and enjoy love and peace and joy and unity and life with God and grace. I am not sure that we would be married, but I am sure that if we were married, we would be miserable had not the defilement and inner vow been taken out and replaced with the presence of God in our relationship and home. And we love you. And we want good for you. And we want God for you. So in a moment, we're gonna respond. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment. What defilement, what inner vows. In a moment, we're gonna collect our tithes and offerings. In your handout, there should also be a sheet of paper Say, what's that for? If there's a defilement that you've been wearing, write it down, put it in the offering, give it to God, leave it here at the church. If there is an inner vow you have made, write it down, renounce it, put it in the bucket, leave it with God, leave it here at the church. Don't put your name, we're gonna shred it and you can just move on. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you 
that, that we don't have to remain loyal to inner vows that we have made or that generations previously to us have put on us as generational curses. Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring life and love, to, to bring peace and healing, to bring joy and hope to these dear people. And for those spirits who would whisper in their ear, for those spirits who would accuse them, for those spirits who would oppose them, for those spirits who would tempt them, for those spirits who would confuse them, the Lord rebuke you. We belong to Jesus. We belong to a victorious King. We belong to a triumphant King. We belong to a coming King. And one day when he is done, we will be exactly who he says that we are and not who you say we have been. So the Lord rebuke you and Holy Spirit, we welcome you in Jesus' name.